You may be seated. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. So on this Sunday prior to Christmas, we're going to look at the resurrection. We're getting close to the end of the book of Matthew. I do not know what I will do. My Bible just opens to Matthew. Um, We've been here so long. Um, Well, the resurrection. The resurrection is of primary importance. We got to understand the resurrection. Christianity rises or falls on the basis of a real and physical man who was God and who lived a, a real and physical life, died a real and physical death, was placed in a real and physical tomb, and he bodily resurrected from the grave, that he is not dead, he is alive. So uh, Christianity rises or falls on the basis of an empty tomb. And so this is of primary importance. And whenever you're confronted uh, with the reality of the risen Lord, you gotta make a choice. It demands a decision. Uh, In fact, you'll remember Saul of Tarsus. uh, No one was more staunchly opposed to Christianity. He wrote it off as a hoax and as a lie. And he was on his way to Damascus to stop Christianity and the spread of the resurrected Christ from going any further. And on the road to Damascus, he, he realizes he's confronted with the fact that he is wrong. That Christ is indeed alive and he is knocked to the ground and he submits his life to Jesus and to serving him. He'll go on to write a good bit of New Testament. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll say, I passed along to you of primary importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he rose. He'll go on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say that if Christ is not risen, our faith is useless. Those who have gone before for us have no hope and he'll say that we of all men are to be most pitied but indeed Christ is risen and he is our first fruit so this is of primary importance we must not miss this and so we're going to look this morning at the account scripture's account of the resurrection then we're going to discuss whether or not it's applicable to our life and then we're going to talk about what action steps we should take in light of the resurrection. With that in mind let me pray with us and we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and it's active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that the power of your living word would penetrate our hearts today. And God, it would draw us to yourself. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray today they'd be confronted with the risen Christ. And Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we'd stand in awe again of what you have accomplished for us and we give our lives to your work, to telling a lost world that Christ is indeed risen. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you'll, you'll know the context here that we looked at last week is that they've secured the tomb of Jesus, the religious leadership. They're probably a bit worried. You remember it was the Pharisees who asked for the tomb to be secured. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. So to some extent, they probably think this is possible. And if he's risen, it was one thing for him to claim to be the Christ. But now if he's a risen Christ, we really got a problem on our hands. So they secure the tomb with somewhere between 12 and 60, 12 on the low end, 60 on the high end, somewhere between there probably is the amount of guards 
that were stationed at the tomb. And you'll remember, they put the seal of Rome there. Um, and the seal of Rome uh, publicly declared that to mess with that tomb was illegal, which I'm sure worried those a- angels a great deal, that they were going to break the law in removing that stone. But they've secured that tomb as best they can. And then we pick up the story in uh, Matthew 28, verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week. So now we've come to Sunday morning. You remember in Matthew 12, 14, the religious leadership, they asked for a sign. We want a sign. And Jesus says, you're not going to get any more signs. Um, and it, just a good reminder, too, there's a lot of people out there that want rock-solid proof of Christianity, and they're looking for more signs. And uh, what Jesus revealed in those religious leaders, the problem was not more signs. The problem was the sinfulness of their heart, wasn't it? And I found that to be the case of a lot of people who are confronted with the truth of Scripture, and they want more proof. The real issue is not more proof or more signs. The real issue is the sinfulness of their heart, that there's some sin in their life they don't want to give up. And so uh, Jesus says, you're not going to get any more signs, but one sign will be given to you, he tells them, and it'll be the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the earth. Now you look at this and you say, well, uh, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday morning, it doesn't look like three full days. You've got to remember, in the Jewish mind, to mention any part of a day was to mention a full day. So Friday has passed, Saturday has passed, Sunday morning's coming, and as this new week begins to dawn, as this new day begins to dawn, really it's the dawning of a new day in salvation history. So uh, this is the first day of the week, uh, the dawn of the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So you've got these two women coming to the tomb, and they're not coming to rejoice in the resurrection. Uh, Mark's gospel tells us that they come with spices. They're coming essentially to uh, pay their last respects. Um, uh, Similar to maybe taking flowers and placing them at the tomb of a loved one. But these women are here because of love. They just love Jesus. They don't know where else to go. They don't know what else to do. They're not coming to celebrate a resurrection. They're coming just to pay their last respects. And we can't be too hard on them because at least they showed up. The disciples aren't even there. Uh, But they're there, driven by love. And Mark's gospel tells us there's one question that's going through their mind, and that's who's going to roll away the stone? When we go, we want to anoint the body of Jesus. Who's going to roll away the stone? Well, when they show up in verse 2, they realize problem solved. Look at verse 2. And behold, an earthquake had occurred. You remember at the death of Christ, there's an earthquake. The resurrection of Christ, now we have another earthquake. You remember when Jesus in his triumphal entry as he's going in, do you remember uh, the religious leadership said, tell those guys to stop worshiping you. And what did he say? If they stop the very rocks themselves will cry out. Now, this is just me here, but I think these earthquakes are the amen of Scripture to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is creation worshiping its creator. And the earth quakes. And it says in verse 2, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. Now, Uh, The word rolled away, the other gospel writers, they use this word that that means more than just rolled away. It means that it was tossed to the side some distance and laid on its side. 
And here we see it's tossed to the distance by this angel. And the angel now sits on the stone. And I love the imagery there. That this thing that they thought was their greatest obstacle has become nothing more than a chair for the angel. And some of you may need to hear this morning that that obstacle in your life that you think is impossible to overcome might just be nothing more than an opportunity for God to show off his power. So in the presence of this angel, obstacles become chairs. It's nothing to God. It's nothing to this angel. And in verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. This angel is reflecting the, the Shekinah glory of God. And it was powerful. In fact, we see in verse 4, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, this is one of those moments in history where I would have loved to have been there. In fact, this is the one moment, if I could be back at some place in history, this is the place I'd want to go. At the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. You remember these angels, their sole purpose is to serve Jesus. That's the the reason they exist. And I believe that throughout Christ's passion, throughout his suffering, uh, those angels have watched. And I can only imagine throughout that process, their job is to serve Christ. And they've said to God, let us add them. And God says, not now. In fact, angels are present at every significant event in Jesus' life except one, the cross. He dies all alone. So here are these angels. And you got the Roman guards there. What is the job of the Roman guards? They got one job. Make sure nobody gets in that tomb. And they've been told that there's a group of Galilean fishermen who just might come and steal that body. And your job is to make sure they don't steal the body. And I would bet that one of them was probably thinking to himself, well, I sure would like to beat up me a Galilean fisherman today. That'd be a lot of fun. And here comes this angel. I don't know. I love to conjecture about these things, but I can only imagine this angel looking at those guards and saying, I'm about to roll away that stone and I'm just hoping one of y'all will get in my way. (laughs) And these guards... Just in the presence, you remember one angel in the Old Testament kills 185,000 men. These are men's men. These are the Navy SEALs of the Roman army. Their greatest strength is that they operate in spite of fear, meaning there's nothing that scares these guys. In the presence of the reflection of the glory of God, they tremble like dead men. If that's how men respond in the presence of an angel that's a mere reflection of God's glory, imagine standing in the presence of God himself. Well, these guards, they're done. They've been paralyzed by fear. And now the the angel turns his attention to the women. And we can surmise that if the The guards were scared, so were the women. So the angels say to them, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. The angels specifically tell these women, you don't need to be afraid. Now, why don't they need to be afraid? And the angel tells them, because we know why you're here. We know who you are. And any friend of Jesus is a friend of ours. So just as they've watched the 
the soldiers persecute Jesus. They've watched as these women served Christ. And they say to them, you don't need to be afraid. And he says in verse 6, he is not here for he has risen just as he said. Ladies, this is not an unexpected event. That's what he's telling them. This is not something that was unanticipated. Christ told you he was going to be raised. In fact, on many occasions, he told you and all of his followers that he would rise again on the third day. Come and see. Come in. Take a look. It's a good reminder that the, the angel does not roll away the stone to let Jesus out. The gospel writers all indicate that Jesus has already left the tomb. The angel rolls away the stone so that the women and so that the world could go in and see that he is not there. He is alive. So come on in. Take a look. And in verse 7, they are given an incredibly high privilege. Verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. These women are given the high privilege of being the first to declare the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, you look back in the Old Testament, the first mentioning of the anointed one of the Messiah, the Mashiach in in Hebrew, the first mentioning of Messiah in the Old Testament, do you know where it occurs? 1 Samuel chapter 2, from the lips of Hannah. The first to declare the forerunner, John the Baptist, that he was coming is not Zacharias. God shut his lips. It'll come from Elizabeth. The first to declare the conception of Christ from a human perspective will not be Joseph. Joseph doesn't get a word in edgewise. It comes from Mary, doesn't it? And here, the first who will declare that he is raised will be women. Why does God do this? A lot of people conjecture, so I'll give you my conjecture. Do you know what I think? I think God loves taking those that the world might seem as less valuable and raising them up to accomplish purposes that are bigger than themselves. Isn't God good that he loves to take ordinary forgotten people and lifting them up and saying, watch, not what man can do, watch what God can do. It's a beautiful picture that God uses the base things, doesn't he? To shame that which is wise and mighty. So they're the first to declare. And and so in verse 8, they left the tomb quickly. There's urgency about them with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. Fear and great joy. There's a reverential awe. In light of the responsibility that's been given to them, there's a reverential awe and there's a great joy. We get to be the first to tell. And as we go out as missionaries sent with a similar task, of telling the world that Christ is alive, we too go out with fear and great joy, don't we? There's a reverential awe that God would desire to use us. He could accomplish his purposes in any way he chose. He didn't have to use these women to declare to the disciples that Christ was risen. He could have sent another angel, but he delights in using people like you and me. And as we go out, we're amazed that God would use us. There's a fear, reverential awe, but there's a great joy knowing there's no greater joy in all the world than telling somebody else about the good news of the resurrected Christ. So they're sent out with that mission. There's joy, there's fear, 
And they ran quickly in verse 9. By the way, when they report to the disciples, what is the response of the disciples? Luke's gospel tells us they responded to the words as nonsense. You know, the first group of people to refute the resurrection of Jesus Christ were the disciples. Isn't it amazing? They've been told over and over again, and when they hear of it, they say, that's nonsense. There's no way this could happen. It, you know, as you, as you read Christianity, I love this. Christianity is not the, the, the concoction of human minds. Man didn't just come up with this and write this story. Christianity is always presented as something that God did in spite of man. <laughs> that, that it's not something that we thought up and it's not something you think your way into. It's something that God reveals to you by means of his Holy Spirit. And so they have nonsense. Women don't go to a tomb expecting a resurrection. They go to a tomb expecting a dead man with a rolled stone in front of it. Well, verse 10 well, verse 9, they go, great joy, and they get the joy of seeing Christ, meeting him. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Can you imagine being overwhelmed, this man that you loved, you owed your life to, and you thought that all hope was lost, and then you see him. And they grab hold of him. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus says, stop clinging to me, I've not yet ascended. But all they know to do is fall at his feet and worship until, until you've been to a place where you fall at your feet and you worship Christ and you cling to him as your only hope and your greatest joy, then you have not fully comprehended what he did for you. This is the appropriate reaction to everyone when they meet up with the risen Christ. We fall at his feet and we worship. And then in verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren. Don't you love it? He calls them brethren. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the disciples who've just made a mess of themselves. Peter has messed up in the biggest possible way. And how does he still refer to him? He refers to him as his brethren. I don't know if any of you need to hear this today because somebody might be in this room today and you feel like you've messed up so bad. Can I tell you today on the basis of God's word, God still loves you. And even when we've goofed up big time, he still calls us his brethren. Well, verse 11, now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Wouldn't you love to have been a part of that meeting? <laughs> Guys, how'd it go last night? Not good. He's not there no more. And I bet there was an uh-oh we got a problem. Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. So they put their heads together and they say, we got to figure this deal out. Now, this is so interesting to me. They are confronted with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet their response is, we've already paid off Judas. We'll pay these guys off too. There's a lesson here. To these Jewish people, their traditions were more important than the truth. Their traditions were more important than the truth. And you know what I've found? There's a lot of people out there today that are rejecting Jesus for the same reason. The truth and the reality of Christ is run in front of them, but they don't want to reject their man-made traditions. 
So in a protection of tradition, they'll overlook and deny the truth that is right in front of them. They pay these guys off, verse 13, and they said, you're to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. On the other side, you got these Jewish leadership that's paying off these guys. Their traditions are more important than the truth. On the other side, you got a group of Roman soldiers, Gentiles, who to them, money and prosperity is more important than the truth. These guards saw it. They saw it with their own eyes. And yet they're going to take money and tell a lie. Why? Because money and stuff is more important than truth. And on the other side, there's a lot of people who are rejecting Christ for that reason too. They don't want to think about Christ. Because they just want to go about their merry way in the accumulation of all their stuff. And they put their fingers in their ears. And they don't want to think about having to stand before Almighty God and face judgment. So in a pursuit of stuff, they overlook the truth. Well, verse 14, and this should come to the governor's ears. We'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. We'll take care of the governor. You guys don't have to worry about that. We've already bulldozed him once. We can bulldoze him again. Verse 15, they took the money and did as they'd been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. This story, by the way, has a lot of holes in it. I mean, can you imagine one of the guards? I'm sure that one of his buddies came up to him and said, hey, you were there, right? Yeah, we were there. Can I ask you, what actually happened? Well, we all fell asleep. You're telling me all 12 to 60 of you, all of you fell asleep? Yeah, yeah, we all fell asleep. You're telling me all of you fell asleep and they rolled away that big old stone and drug a dead body out and none of y'all woke up? No, we were dead asleep. Well, if you were dead asleep, how do you know the disciples were the ones who came and took the body? <laughs> Folks, it's a story with all kinds of holes in it. Quite frankly, it's ridiculous. But when you don't want to confront the truth of Christ, you'll come up with all re- kinds of reasons to deny him. Ridiculous reasons that make no sense at all. Now, between verses 15 and 16, There's at least nine, I was trying to figure it up this week, nine to ten appearances of Christ, the resurrected, the physically, the physical bodily resurrected Christ. Um, He'll appear to Mary, to Peter, to John, to Thomas, to James on the Emmaus Road, to two individuals. And Paul will tell us that he appeared at one place to over 500 people at one time. That's a lot of appearances of the physical bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. Christ. But it's also a good reminder that that while the resurrection is something that God accomplishes corporately for all the people of God, he meets with each one of us individually, doesn't he? He's going to have an individual meeting with Peter who was so discouraged. Can you imagine Peter? He's blown in a big way. And the resurrected Christ is going to show up to him. He's going to show up to Thomas. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see uh, and touch his hands and put my, put my uh, finger in his side. I, I, I'll, I'll not believe. And you know what? Jesus shows up to him and says, come on, brother. Try it out. He shows up to, to James. James is his half-brother. But James isn't a believer. Thought it was all foolishness. You'll remember Jesus doesn't give his mother into the hands of James, does he? He gives, it, gives her in the hands of John. But he's going to have an individual meeting with James. 
But that's the story of Christianity, that God does these things for all the people of God, but he meets with each one of us. If you're here today and you know Christ, he met with you individually. You can tell me a story, can't you? I can tell you mine at a final night of a revival service in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. When the risen Savior, there's no other explanation. He spoke, I'd heard the gospel multiple times. You guys could tell the same story. Isn't it amazing? The resurrected Christ comes and confronts each one of us. Now, we have to ask ourselves, is this even applicable though? What, so what? What does it matter that, that Christ was, was resurrected? Well, I'll tell you, it's a, there's, there's nothing, I, I believe there's nothing more applicable to your life than the resurrection of Christ. Unless you're here today and you have no plans of dying. If you have no plans to die, if you're planning on living and never dying, you're good to go. You can walk out now. The rest of you, I'd say it's applicable for your life. Because what do we all know? We're all going to die, aren't we? We don't like to talk about it. Our culture has sanitized itself from death, haven't we? We've got funeral home. We, we, it's, it's such a sanitized process. You go to other countries. We were in Uganda this summer. Boy, we found them firsthand. It, they deal with it, and they confront it head on. You live to be 45, you, you, you're an old person. They deal with it every day. And most cultures preceding us, they've had to confront it. They've had to see it, physical death, right in front of them. Our culture, we don't like to talk about it. There are a lot of people that won't even go to a funeral. Do you know what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes? He says, it's better go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. He says, it's better go to a funeral than a party. Why? Because a funeral reminds you that one day you're going to be there. And they're going to say a few nice words and they're going to go eat some fried chicken. They're going to move on. I'm going to tell you, I've been to a lot of them. That's what they do. A lot of people think they're all great. There's going to be more than that. Listen, I've been to some great people's funeral. And the question that we all got to ask ourselves, we're going to come to that moment. Am I prepared? Am I prepared for that moment? And we've got to ask ourselves, is there anybody out there that's conquered death? And have they made a way for me to conquer death? And the response of Christianity is yes. That, that, that death is a product of sin and God seeing us in our sinful condition lovingly sent his son to come and die for our sins so that we can have a way of life. And he becomes to us, as Paul says, our first fruits. Do you know Christ will die on Passover? The day they killed the lamb, Christ was, was killed. He died for our sins. Do you know what they would do? Uh, three days after Passover, they'd have the Feast of First Fruits. Isn't this so cool? They'd take a sheath of grain, the first fruits of the grain, and they'd wave it before God. And what they were saying is if this sheath of grain is accepted, it means all the harvest will be accepted. Now, isn't this powerful? Three days after the Passover, on the day of first fruits, Christ is our first fruits. And because he is alive and was accepted, so shall we through our faith in him. Just had the funeral of a blessed woman, Betty Nolte. And we're a little bit sad because we're on this side of glory. But we did a lot of celebrating because we know that she's never been more alive than she is today. Through her faith in Jesus Christ, his victory has become hers and if you don't know that victory and you don't have that assurance, 
The message of the resurrection is you can have it today through faith in Jesus. Now, it's not just applicable for your death. It's also applicable for your life. Jesus didn't come to just give you the assurance of an eternal life with him. He came to give you life today. But you know what I submit to you? Most people aren't really living. They're just existing. You know, there's something out there called... um, the, the ant mill or it's the ant death spiral. You can Google it. You can watch videos. It's unbelievable. They don't know why some ants will do this. Not all, but army ants. Occasionally, the leader of the army ants and will just start going in a circle. And ants apparently are blind. They just follow a smell. And so the ants will just fall in line behind that leader ant and they'll just start going in circles. And they'll just keep going in circles and going in circles sometimes for days until eventually they all die of starvation or exhaustion. And the the real lesson there is you better know who you're following and where they're going. But, But listen, there's a whole lot of people. I get up every morning and I get on K10. Some of you get on I-35. Some of you get on 435. And a lot of people out there, they're getting up every day to do what? To go to work, to do what? To make some money, to do what? To pay for food, to buy a nice house, wear nice clothes, and drive a nice car. Maybe go on a nice vacation. They go home, they go to bed, they get up in the morning to go to work, to buy some food, to live in a house, drive a nice car, to go to bed, to get up. Maybe to retire someday in Florida, I don't know. But they're just getting up, There's there's no sense of mission. And we wonder why there's so much depression in this world. I can't tell you, I can't think of anything more depressing than living for me. I can't think of anything more depressing than living for a bunch of stuff that's going to rot and fade. And the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that, folks, you are made for more than getting up to go to work to buy stuff. You were made for an eternal mission that's bigger than yourself. Christ came, lived, and died so that you could have life and have it more abundantly. And the abundant life doesn't mean a bunch of possessions. It means that you discover that true life is found in living in submission to Christ and his mission. I'm going to tell you there's nothing more fulfilling in all the world than when you know that in whatever vocation you have, your real mission is to be the light of Christ and to tell the world that he is alive. That's the application but then finally, what's the action? What do we do with this? Well, if you're here today, it's very simple. And you, if you don't know Christ, the application is believe. Believe in Jesus. I love The scripture says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's to believe in Jesus in a similar fashion to if you were on a plane that you knew, were going, knew was going down, that plane's going to crash, and you looked over and you saw a parachute. Would you look at that parachute and say, boy, that's a really nice parachute. I believe in that parachute. You wouldn't do that. What would you do? You'd pick up that parachute and you'd put it on because you know I'm about to jump out and that parachute's my only hope. And the Bible says to put on the Lord Jesus in a similar way. Not to believe in him in some sentimental fashion. Yeah, I know he's a great person, did a lot of good work. No, it means I'm going to put him on because I know he's my only hope. I'm about to jump off this plane. And he's my only hope. Some of you say, well, I still got questions. Listen, I'm going to tell you today, trust Jesus. He's big enough for your questions. But you put on the Lord Jesus today because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Let's deal with the biggest issue first. And that's your eternal destination. Now, 
If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, what's the action for us? The action for us is go tell somebody. Tell somebody he's alive. And you have life because he gave you life. You know, in 2 Kings, the people of Israel, the northern portion of Israel, they are experiencing a famine. And they've been besieged by the Aramean army under Ben-Hadad. And it's such a bad deal. It says that they're eating, we laughed about that this week, they're eating donkey head and dung. That's a bad day in it. That's a bad famine. We talked about opening the dung and donkey head diner. How about that? That's a bad place. That was actually me and Bill's conversation. That tells you where our theological discussions go during the week. Uh, But it's a bad day, all right? They're dying. And there's two lepers that decide we can die in here or die out there, but we're going to die. So why don't we just go over to the Aramean army and ask them if we can have some food? And so they go over to the Aramean army, and what do they find out? God's defeated the enemy. God scared them all off. And right there in front of them is all the wine and the food that they could ever eat. And these two lepers, they begin to indulge themselves, and then it hits them. This is not right. There's a whole bunch of people over there that are moments away from death. How can we indulge in the life that's available to us here when there's a world around us that's dying? And they leave, and they go make sure that everybody else knows it's a day of salvation. Come and eat. God is good. That is us. How can we listen for us to partake of the life of Jesus Christ and salvation in him and then to go silent to a world that is lost and dying? It is immoral. It's not right. And I'm going to tell you specifically, a lot of you are going to be around tables and in rooms in the next few days with family members and friends who don't know Jesus. And I'm challenging you. I know sometimes it can be fearful in the presence of family. And maybe you've shared with them before. I'm challenging you to share with them one more time. And to step out in faith. And to tell them about the risen Christ who came and lived and died and rose for their salvation. Let's be bold for Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word that, that instructs. It's so clear, Lord. You've made this so simple for us. And Lord, I, I pray for uh, anybody here this morning that doesn't know you. I pray this morning they've been confronted with the resurrected Christ, the reality that Christ is alive. And Lord, I pray that they would be drawn to you. I pray that the response in light of the risen Christ would be the same as Paul on the road to Damascus, the same as these women as they confronted Christ, I pray that they would fall on their knees and they would worship you. They would give their life to you. As Paul said, I urge you, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room that we do know you. God, for those of us that have partaken of the life of Christ, I pray that we would share freely with those around us. In fact, Lord, I pray that we'd be bold and courageous with the opportunities that that you give to us. 
that as Paul said, we would be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe you just want to pray with a pastor. Um, Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. But this is your time. We'll have pastors here at the front. You respond as the Lord leads. You'll never regret obeying Jesus Christ. You respond as we sing.